Isn't God so amazing, so generous, so giving? And I'm aware this morning that uh, a subject like this is going to have different reactions for some of you. Um, Some of you will immediately say, oh yeah, but you don't know my circumstances, you don't know my situation, and that's absolutely true. Some of you will say, but I'm married to someone who's not a believer, and that's an issue. And I understand all of that, okay? And there are all kind of caveats, and I want to be sensitive and, and all of that around this whole subject this morning. And some of you will say, hey, I'm not a Christian. Uh, and, and a lot of what I'm going to say is not going to be so relevant to you this morning because you're not yet a Christian. So you can sit back and relax, and you can say, all you guys are Christians, you've got to do this because you believe in the Bible. I haven't got to. And you're absolutely, you're absolutely true. So you can sit back and relax. It gives you a window into what we believe okay, around this subject. And um, we're going to talk uh, around the connection between money and happiness and money and our desire to be generous. Okay, That's what we're going to talk about. And a lot of this stuff that I'm going to share in the front bit is from a guy called Andy Stanley, who I follow a lot. He's an amazing communicator. And, he, and this is a lot of the front end stuff is his stuff, which is so good. I want to pass it on to you this morning. And there is a question here. Is there a connection between money and happiness? Is there a connection between money and happiness? And I know that most of you will will think to yourself, oh preacher, you're going to say no. You're going to say money can't make you happy. Actually, that's not what I'm going to say. Because some of you will say, if I said, is there a connection between money and happiness? Some of you will say, could I give it a try? Wouldn't you? You say, well, let me give it a go and I'll check it out. And and you give me a million quid and I'll check it out. And I'll tell you in six months whether there is a connection between money and happiness. Listen, there is a connection between money and happiness, but it's not the connection we think. The connection we think is the word more. If only I had more, then I'd be happy. Then I could be generous. Here's the problem. How much more do you need? More than I currently have is the answer, isn't it? And the Bible says in the Old Testament, in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 10, whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. The answer, if more is your connecting word, to how much more is always more than you currently have. But I want to suggest the connection between money and happiness, and there is one, is not the word more, it's the word managed. Can you say managed for me this morning? Managed. That is the connection between money and happiness and money, happiness and generosity. We will never be happy or fulfilled or have inner peace or be generous if we don't understand that the connection between money and wealth and happiness is not more, it's managed. Because when we manage our money, then comes peace. And you cannot be happy and fulfilled without a sense of peace. Until we get to grips with this, we will never become the generous people that deep down we all want to become. Jesus spoke about money and possessions more than any other issue. Why? Because if you don't manage your money, it will manage you. If you don't manage your desires, they will manage you. If you don't manage the more issue, it will manage you. And Jesus says in Luke 16 verse 13, No one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And I want you to know this morning, whether you have a lot of money or no money, this is relevant. 
Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, some of this is really relevant to you. Whether you're married or not, whether you've been in this thing called Christianity for a, a week, a month, or 40 years, this is relevant to all of you. For Jesus, the chief competitor for your devotion is not the devil and it's not sin, it's stuff. The chief competitor for your devotion is our attachment to stuff, to money, to things, to possessions. How many of you have ever desired something and got it and wished you hadn't? Anyone ever done that? Any had a regret when, when you said, oh, why did I buy that? Why did I get that? Why did I marry them? No, no, that's a different one. Why did I get that stuff? Why? That's a different one completely. <laughs> different talk, different talk. But the problem is desires have a way of gripping us. How many of you, and this will, this will make some of you squirm in the room, have ever opened a wardrobe, your wardrobe, and it is full of clothes, and you've looked at that full wardrobe, and you've uttered this phrase, I have nothing to... How many have ever said that? Come on. I've said that. We open the wardrobe. It's full of stuff. It can't have any more clothes in it. There is no more space. You put three or four items on one coat hanger. Yes, you know it. It is so full. There is not any space for clothes to breathe. And yet you have nothing to wear. Because desires have a way of managing us rather than us managing them. Now, this is honestly time for me this morning, okay? I've been a leader of this church for 16 years and, and, and on, in this church for over 23 now. And um, for years, for those first few years that I was in Christian leadership, I dreaded speaking about money. All right. It was one of the things that I knew was really important. Jesus speaks about it more than he does about prayer, more than he does about heaven and hell. It's the, it's the number one topic he speaks about, to be honest. So it's got to be important. And I used to dread it. And the reason I dreaded it was because I was thinking to myself, well, then everyone would just think the stereotype is true. The pastors of churches, they only interested in us for our money. Okay? And that's why I used to dread think, uh, talking about it. And then this cartoon I saw years ago kind of put it into, into perspective. Two guys last, lost on a desert island. I'm afraid no one will ever find us. Don't worry. I give 100,000 years to my church. My pastor will find us. And I think <laughs> it, it was that kind of idea that made me dread wanting to talk about money. But I want you to know something. 20 odd years later, I don't dread it anymore. Because I've met too many people whose lives have been wrecked and ruined because they could not manage their stuff. Too many marriages that have broken up because more got a hold of them rather than managed. Too many people who were following God and who were serving God and loving God, but then they started serving and loving money. And you cannot serve two masters. So I don't dread speaking about this any anymore because this could be something that could set you free. And I want something for you more than I want something from you. So that's why I don't dread at all speaking about this subject this morning. Whoever you are, whatever your background, whatever your financial system or security or position is right now, I don't fear this. This is life-giving if we could only embrace it. And... Um, I believe that financial freedom is possible, but it's not easy. And I want to talk just for a few minutes about a guy in the Bible who found spiritual freedom, financial freedom, and then was incredibly generous with it. And there's almost like this spiritual reconciliation with God and this financial reconciliation with God were both vitally important for this guy to live out the generous life. 
And some of you will know the story. It's in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 19. If you've got a Bible, the words are going to come up on the screens. And it's the story of this little short man called Zacchaeus. So let's read it together. Jesus entered Jericho, verse 1, and was passing through. So he was on the way to somewhere else. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. And I love these next five words. When Jesus reached the spot, he just stopped. And I love that. You know, there used to be a beer advert, so Simon tells me, um, (laughs) I'm joking, uh, that said that this beer will reach the spot that others won't reach. Well, Jesus reaches the spot that nobody else can. No matter where you are this morning, whether the finance is your issue or whether something else, wherever you are, whatever spot you're in, Jesus can reach it. And when he reaches your spot, he stops. It's beautiful. He stopped and he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Just love that. I must stay. Not I'd like to or I'd want to, but I must stay at your house today. You see, he wanted something for him more than he wanted something from him. And the only way he could get that is if he stayed at his house that day. And so he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. Maybe there were other guys up in the tree. I don't know. But Zacchaeus was the one that Jesus spoke to. And Zacchaeus was the one that came down. All the people saw this and began to mutter. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up feeling 10 feet tall, I reckon. And he said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. What a great story. You know, Zacchaeus was a wealthy man, very wealthy. What drove him to such extremes, to push through a crowd, to climb up a tree, to... You know, to, to, to risk all of this exposure, to become vulnerable in front of the community. The community hated him. Firstly, he was a tax collector, not the most popular job on the planet. And secondly, a corrupt one who'd taken a lot of their money. They hated him. And yet he risked their wrath. And he was vulnerable and exposed because he wanted, and he knew that he was powerless to change his situation. Only a greater power could change it. And he'd heard all the news and the buzz about this Jesus and he wanted to get to him. But the problem was there were two barriers. Firstly, the crowd and secondly, his size. And so there, all of a sudden, he saw a tree. This is a sycamore tree. Interestingly, in the, in the, in the Middle East, sycamore trees are amazing because their branches are so low, they are so easy to climb. And so he climbs this tree and he's perched up in the tree. And then Jesus reaches the spot and he looks up and he calls him down. And he chose to come down and his life was never the same again. And what happened to Zacchaeus was a spiritual reconciliation, but there was also a financial reconciliation as well. And that led to freedom and then it led to him becoming a generous man. Let me just pause that for a moment, like press pause on the DVD or whatever. And let me just say a few other comments as an aside. Those of you that are Christians and part of this church, I want you to know something. There are lots of times when people in our community and in our culture get more inquisitive about God than we, than, we, than we admit. They struggle with church often. They struggle with accessing that. But there are certain times of the year and there are certain situations when actually they do want to know a little bit more about Jesus. Christmas is one of those times, isn't it? 
So at Christmas, more people will go to church than any other time. In fact, when I, I met recently with some of our local pastors, some in churches like ours, some in very different churches, Anglican churches, Catholic churches, Methodist, Baptist, and I asked them the same question, how did Christmas go? They all said to me, we had more people come to church at Christmas than we've ever had before. We experienced that here, didn't we? And it's almost like at Christmas, there's a, there's a buzz around Jesus and people want to see for themselves. People want to go. And here's the thing. That's why our job as a church is to build them a tree. Our job as a church is to provide a tree that helps others get a better look at who Jesus is. And that's why we did all that we did at Christmas. That's why we did the Stuff the Sleigh event where we took 500 gifts out into the community. That's why we did the event that we did here and we saw you know, the guys work so hard for four productions on one day. That's why we do all that because we want to create a tree so that others can take a look and have a little bit of a look at Jesus. Because do you know what? They can't ever inquisitive, but they can't get to him. There's too many barriers. So we've got to build a tree so they can get a better look at who Jesus is. And then when they've done that, we want to give them an opportunity to come down. An invite to come down and to meet him. Whether they come down or not is completely up to them. It's why at this church we do a lot of the things that we do. You might think, why do we do that? You know, we don't talk about God in that environment. But what we do in many of our uh, activities and environments is we build a tree that helps others to get a better look at who Jesus is. And then we give them an invite to come down. It's why on a Friday night, you know, we, we do our, our kids' work and our youth work. And, and our kids' work now on a Friday night, there is as many kids coming on a Friday night as there is on a Sunday morning. But here's the thing. 80% of those on a Friday don't go to church. Their families don't go to church. But that's a great tree for them to get a better look at who Jesus is. And, and then in our youth work, we get over 200 teenagers come on a Friday night. That's a great thing to bless the community, to give them a safe place to come. But it's also a tree that gives them a view to who Jesus really is. Now, whether they come down or not and have a closer look is completely up to them. But we build the tree and give them an invite. Which is why... I want to announce something to you, that this Easter, we want to do something very, very different. We have never done this before. We are trying it. It might fail. It might flop. It don't matter. We're going to give it a go anyway. Good Friday is March the 25th. Easter's much earlier than it usually is. And so the kids break up just a couple of days or a day before, and then we're into the Easter weekend and then the two-week holidays after that. So on March the 25th, Good Friday, instead of, well, as well as, we're often for us as Christians, Good Friday, all about the sacrifice of Jesus, is all around communion for us. It's all about us remembering what Jesus has done by his death and by his sacrifice, which is totally right and totally good. But instead of just doing that, what we want to do on Good Friday is something different. So what we want to do, and you'll get information about this in the next few weeks, is that we want to, in the morning, have two hours of social action where we go out into our local communities and we do stuff for them. We go litter picking, we go paint, we go do whatever the needs are, and we're looking and talking with people about that. Then in the afternoon, we want to host as a free event for our community a family fun afternoon where we get the kids floor and the youth floor, a little bit like we did on the 35th. We get all that packed up. We have a live stage. We get bouncy castles. We get burger vans and ice cream vans and, and all other kinds of stuff just to say to the community, we want to bless you. We want to do it for free and we want people to come. And then in the evening, we're going to have just an hour's service where it's very stripped down, where we come around a table with bread and we wine and wine and we remember the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. So basically, Good Friday for us this year is in the morning we want to serve the community, in the afternoon we want to bless the community, and in the evening we want to remember and remind ourselves why we do it. 
Now you might say, oh, I can't do that whole day. That's fine. You could just dip in for one of those bits or two of those bits or all three. But what an amazing thing on the day that we remember sacrifice to serve and to bless our community because that's why we do it. Because he laid down his life for us. So we want to build a tree. We want to then invite people to come down. So on Easter Sunday, we'll be doing an event, a production, musical and all that kind of stuff and inviting people to come to church at Easter and an opportunity to come down and to connect with the one who can change everything. Is that a good thing to do? So fantastic. So brilliant. Thank you. Wow. Round of applause. Brilliant. So back to Zacchaeus. He came down the tree and Jesus visited his home. There's, I have no idea what was said, but Zacchaeus found freedom spiritually and financially. And you know, there are many of us in this room and you have found spiritual freedom. You have found spiritual reconciliation with God. But here's the thing. We also need to find financial freedom and financial reconciliation as well. You see, you cannot be fully free from shame, guilt and fear until this issue is dealt with in your life. Someone once said, conversion that doesn't include economic change isn't authentic. If we do not crown him Lord of all, we do not crown him Lord at all. If he's not Lord of everything, maybe he's not Lord of anything. Until our whole life is brought under his control, his direction, maybe nothing really is. So how do we break the power of money, the power of more, so we become the generous people that we really deep down want to be? I want to share two things with you this morning, but the second one's got like 16 other points. Okay, so there you go. So the first one is this. We firstly need a core belief, a core belief that all we have comes from God. If you don't have that, there's no way this is going to work for you. We've got to come to a point where we think, you know what? Everything I have comes from God. The Bible says in James 1 verse 17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. In other words, unless your core belief is that everything you have, your money, your house, your stuff, is a gift from God. He gives it to you and he wants you to, and here's the word, steward it. The technical word is called stewardship. So he puts it into your hands, but it all belongs to God. Take a look at the screen. Stewardship is a term that I think sounds quite strange, like it's someone serving passengers some peanuts on a plane after demonstrating how the oxygen masks will hang. But it really means what you do with what you gain. Everything belongs to God. We don't really own a thing, but we're his stewards here on earth, so he lets us hold his change. He doesn't care if we win, just how we play the game, and soon we must explain how we spent his dough today. You can tell a topic's touchy by the way people behave. Pastor mentioned stewardship, and you can hear the crickets play. Good stewardship depends on how well you give away what you've been blessed with to bless others in a similar way. Whether you make top pay or minimum wage, the widow's might was preferred to what the rich man gave. It can be tough giving up what we work for every day, but God loves a cheerful giver, and it's all his anyway. So if you're the type of fellow with a profit motive brain, giving 10% of your income probably seems insane. And money for missionaries might as well be flushed in drains. If that's the case, you need to take stewardship class again. So the first thing is a core belief. The second thing is we need an effective strategy, something that actually works. If you took everything Jesus said and boiled it about money and possessions and boiled it down to two words, it would be these two words, generosity and wisdom. Generosity and wisdom. But I want to suggest that wisdom will probably come before generosity. 
See, here's our strategy, okay? For many people, this is our wisdom. Our strategy when it comes to money is this. Live, save, and then give. So with whatever we've got, we want to live on that. So we pay our mortgage, and we pay our bills, and we buy our food, and we buy our clothes, and we get what we want to do. If there's anything left over, we might save it. And if there's anything left over from that, then we might give it. That's a common strategy many Christians adopt. Can I tell you, that is not a strategy that will work for financial freedom. You will never become the generous, God-honoring person that deep down you want to be if that is your strategy. I want to humbly suggest the best strategy is a complete reversal of that, where we give first, save secondly, and then live on what is, re- on what is left. Now, I know some of you will immediately freak out and say, that's completely unrealistic. Hang with me. Hang with me. When we give first, it proves who is master in our life, and that leads to joy. And when you have joy, isn't that an incredible thing? Deep down, when you say, do you know what, God? I know that you are my master. I know that you are my Lord. You are the one I want to honor. That leads to incredible joy. When we save, that means that there's some money in the bank, and that can result in some peace of mind. And like we said a few weeks ago, you cannot be happy unless you've got that peace in your mind. And then when we live on what is left, that means that we live free because we don't spend more than we can make. Let me just read some stuff to you. See, I want is better than I owe. I want is better than I owe. It is better to live with I want but don't owe than to live with I owe but can't pay. Can I say that again? It is better to live with I want but don't owe than to live with I owe but can't pay. You see, I want is between you and God. I owe is between you and some other people. Okay? So I want is between you and God. Hey, God, I want this. Yeah, I know you, but you can't afford it right now. Yeah, but I want. Yeah, yeah. But if you stay with I want rather than I owe, it is better for you. That's why we have always committed never to go into debt unless it's our mortgage, which is that managed debt. And I know that that many of you will be in debt. I understand that. And I want to try and be sensitive to this. And there have been many reasons why you're in that situation. But I want to say that getting into a place where this strategy works in your life is the road to freedom. It really is. No amount of more can bring you joy, peace and freedom. Only managed can do that. Only managed can do that. So let's just look at these three words very quickly. Give. Why do we struggle? And I'm talking to Christians now, okay? If you're not a Christian, you can chill out and relax and, and you can, I was going to say smoke a cigarette, but you know what I mean. You can't do that. You can just sit back and chill out. That's what I meant. Uh, just image in my head there. So why do so many Christians struggle with giving? Here's some stats. One in 10 Christians give 10% or more to God through their local church. Four in 10 give 5% or less. One in 20 give nothing. Four in 10 said they, they decided how much they give, which means six in 10 have never thought about how much to give. Why the struggle? I think one of the reasons that we struggle is that we haven't been adequately taught. You know, many years ago, uh, when Alison and I were first married, before we had kids, we were, we, we lived in a terraced house in Shell Corner in Blackheath. And we were, we were lying in one Saturday morning and all of a sudden I heard this incredible noise and went out onto the landing. And there was a massive hole in our landing and we were looking out into the sky. I thought, oh, that was interesting. And the chimney next door had fallen into our house. Okay. Then there was a knock on the door and we opened the door and there was a roofer outside our house who was completely dirty and and dust and cuts and bruises all over him. He'd fallen down the next door's house. 
And what had happened is that uh, the next door was doing some work and they cut away the chimney breast, okay, around the chimney uh, in, in, in the lounge and they hadn't told the roofer. So when he cut, turned up uh, to do the roof stuff, the, the, the actual top of the chimney that was sticking out was resting on nothing and he came crashing through the house. And I've never forgotten that, okay, because it was a weird experience, but also it's a reminder of how important foundations are in your life. If you don't get something right at the bottom, your whole house could come crashing down. Getting this clear in our minds is important because if we don't get it clear as a foundation, the whole of the house could collapse. And maybe we haven't been adequately taught about the foundation of giving. Maybe we haven't found ways of managing our finances, and I want to speak about that later. Or maybe, and I think this is the big one for Christians, we haven't dealt with the big issue, which is trust and control. Many Christians don't give in a consistent way to their local church because they can't control where the money goes. Can I suggest humbly that is not an issue between you and the church. It's an issue between you and God. And we have always tied into the local church, whatever church we've been a part of. And, and that's between us and God. But it's through the local church because that's what we believe the Bible says. And for me, giving first makes financial and spiritual sense. And for me, the Bible teaches a way you can do that is this word that Christians don't like these days called tithing where we give 10% of our income to God first and then the 90 that we've got left still all belongs to God. But hey-ho, we're open to being led by him if he wants us to give any more of that. Bible says in Proverbs 3, 9, Honour the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. In other words, give to God first, don't give to God last. You know, uh, we, we having some people for lunch and having some people around on Friday. And, you know, we love leftovers in our house. Okay, me and Alison love that. We love having a roast dinner and then, you know, going on the leftovers for as far as we can do it. We love that. We try and get creative with it. But if you come to our house, we won't serve you leftovers. So why, when we come to God, would we give God leftovers when to in other areas we'd give the best? And so tithing first gives us a great opportunity to honour God. Tithing is a trust issue, but tithing is also a faith issue. Listen to this illustration from a guy called Bill Hybels. He puts it so well. Imagine two friends, Steve and Tom. Steve says, I'm going to need 100% of my income to get me from A to B. Got it? Tom says, I'm going to give God 10% of my income. And then with the 90%, I'm going to trust God to get me from A to B. You got the situation, yeah? Now, Steve may get from A to B on his 100%, but I believe so will Tom. On his 90%, he'll get from A to B. But what's more, he'll even, he'll get to C as well, because God will take him there. Because A to B is what you can get and you can control. But when you, God takes you to C, that's a whole new way of living. Where you're learning to trust him, where you're learning to keep be open-handed, where you're learning the adventure of listening to him whisper and prompt, and you give, and God gives back, and you give, and you're blessed, and all of this exciting stuff can happen. Both guys think the other guy is an idiot. But here's the question. Which idiot do you want to be? Which idiot do you want to be? Do you want to be the one that says, I'm going to keep all my money and I'm only going to trust myself? Or do you want to be the one that says, God, I'm going to honour you first. I'm going to trust you with the 90 that you give me back. And then I'm going to let you lead me from A to B and maybe even to C or to D. Which idiot do you want to be? Guy called C.S. Lewis, great Christian writer and author, said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. There's something about, you know, as our income increases, 
Something about God challenging us to not let our living expenses increase so much as well. Maybe we can live on less so that we can honor God and so we can bless others and so that we can be the generous people we want to be. What about save? Why do we struggle to save? If I'm honest, out of the three, this is the one that I've struggled with the most. We've never struggled with giving. We've always made that a foundation principle and we've never struggled with living on the rest. But the saving one is an issue that we're trying to address. But the Bible says in Proverbs 6, verse 6 to 8, Take a lesson from the ants, you lazy bones. Learn from their ways and become wise. Though they have no prince or governor or ruler to make them work, they labor hard all summer gathering food for the winter. Where I would love to be in my own life is to be in almost a 10-10-80 principle. Giving God 10%, saving 10% and living on the 80. And seeing what God could do in that whole dynamic. Peace of mind, knowing there's something in the bank. And then finally live. Why do we struggle with living financially free? I think the answer is we don't do the other two. So we struggle with living financially free because we don't give first and we don't save. And uh, you know, when you get into this situation where you live free, it is so, so exciting. In that book, Bill Hybels, the book uh, that I've read that, that illustration in, he also tells a story, which is such an inspiring story, that he goes to a, a coffee shop one morning and he's having a cup of coffee on his own and he's working away. And then as the waitress comes and takes the coffee, he, he hears like a whisper of God in, in his head to say, leave her a breathtakingly generous trip, uh, tip, trip, tip. And so he thinks like 30%. And then he, and then he, and then he senses God say, no, leave her $100. And he says to God, I only had a cup of coffee. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And he's Dutch, apparently, so there's an issue there as well, apparently. And he says that, not me. But so he leaves her a $100 check, a $100 tip, and he leaves her a note to say that God had told him to do this. And he didn't know whether she was a Christian or not. And here's how he describes what happened. The next week when he came in, she came in, she put a note on his desk, and she, uh, on, on his table, and she went away. And the note said this, you will never know what your gift and note meant to me. That morning, my husband served me divorce papers and he controls all our money. That day was one of the worst in my life, but your note and gift reminded me that God is faithful and he will take care of me. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. When you trust God and when you honor God, you get to live in the adventure of this. When we were first married, and um, again before kids, and I was working for uh, a charity called Salt Mine, and so it wasn't on a lot of money, putting it mildly, and Alison had just started working, but we felt God say to us to give £100 to somebody, which was a lot of money in those days, and a lot of money for us. And we've always had this thing between us that, you know, if either of us senses something, we just go with it. And so we did it. And then a couple of weeks later, we went away and we were, we were leading a Christian holiday. And at the end of the holiday, we got friendly with a couple of people there. And at the end of the thing, as we were going out to get onto the coach to go back to the airport to go home, he, he, he came to me on one side, this guy, and he says, we've really been blessed by you guys. And great. Here's just a little gift for you. Gave me an envelope. Uh, looked inside the envelope a little bit later on my own. Subtle. Uh, <laughs> didn't want to go, you know. And, and, and I looked at it and I thought, oh, it's £100. That's amazing. It's like we gave, you know, we felt God given and he's given it back. But actually, when I looked again, it wasn't 100 it was 1000 And it was, I know, and it, doesn't, it hasn't happened since. All right, no, but, but it's almost like, it was almost like in that moment, and it doesn't happen all the time, and we've given other things and had nothing back. So please don't think I'm suggesting, as some people do, that you give and God will give you 10 times more. I'm not. But something was birthed in our spirits back then. A principle that whenever God whispers, we want to be in a situation where we can respond, whether we get anything back or not. It's like God gave back to us 10 times just to almost seal this principle in our lives and in our spirits. And that's not to big us up at all. 
But many of you in this room could testify to the incredible power of living a financially free, adventurous and generous life. I believe it is possible. So how do we respond to this this morning? I want to ask you a couple of questions as we finish. Do you believe that all you have is God's? At the core of who you are, do you believe that everything you have belongs to God and the way that you manage that will bring honor and glory to Him? Do you believe that? Maybe this morning you say, I'm not sure I do. God, could you help me? Could you manage me in such a way that I could come to believe that to be true for myself? Second question I want to ask you is this, and please don't, don't, don't get offended. Which idiot do you want to be? Do you want to be the one that grabs a hold of your stuff and only trusts you and controls it yourself? Or do you want to be the one that honors God by giving to God first and then by living that life of freedom open to his whisper? Which idiot do you want to be? The one that could get from A to B or the one that can go from A to B, trusting God and maybe to C or D or E, the adventure beyond. Do you want peace that comes from money in the bank? Do you want the adventure of living the generous life? If the answer is yes, I want to ask you, act today. Do something today with what you've heard. At the connection point, there's two things you can do there on this. There's some information you can pick up about giving and you can give and many people. And it would be remiss of me not to say a massive thank you to all of you in this church who do give amazingly. I'm always blown away by it. You know, not just by the amount, but by the faithfulness and the consistency of what you do. And you know, we as a church only exist because of the financial contributions of this church. And we get to do what we do with the kids and with the youth and in the community and overseas and all that. Because you are so faithful in your giving. Amazing. And you know, but maybe for some of you, this is an area where you need to grow in. Maybe you could take a step. Maybe you think, I can't get to 10%, but maybe you could take a step from where you are. We'd love to help you with that. We can give you some information about that. But it may be also today that actually you find yourself in a mess financially. You find yourself in a situation which increasingly is looking dark. We want to help you. We want more for you than we want from you. And again, you can talk to someone at the Connection Point or in the Connection Lounge. We have loads of people in the church through our care network who would love to come alongside you confidentially and help you with your financial situation so that you can get to that place eventually where you can become the generous you that deep down you really want to be. I'm going to ask the band to come back. And there's one final thing that I want to share. And this is something that came to me yesterday or the day before as I was praying for this morning. And it was again a little bit of a mental picture that God gave me. And I sense that there will be some of you here this morning and it's like you're in on your own in a room and it's all dark and you're looking at the books and you're looking at some financial situation in your life and all you can see is darkness. All you can see is darkness and you cannot see a way out. And I was um, chatting with someone in the week in a counselling type situation with Simon as well. And Simon said something to, to this other, uh, other person which was so helpful for them but I thought really helpful for some of you this morning. And it was this, and he said to him, listen, you know, when you're in a situation, it feels like you're in this dark tunnel and you can't see anything but darkness. And we often think, oh, but there's light at the end of the tunnel. But then Simon said, but you know what? There's light in the tunnel as well. There's light in the tunnel because of God. And I thought that was so helpful. And it may be that for some of you today that you are in a situation which seems so dark financially, you can't see the light at the, at the end of the tunnel at all. But do you know what? God can give you light in the tunnel. And it may be that the situation doesn't change, but having light changes everything, doesn't it? When you're in a dark room and it's all dark, the fear of what might be there is the thing that drives us potty. 
but actually to have light to know, hey, I don't know what might be out there, but I know who is here. God. And there's light in the tunnel is an amazing thing. And so if that's you, I want to pray for you this morning. I want to pray for you. I want to read a couple of verses. Hebrews 13, 5 to 6 from the message. Don't be obsessed with getting more material things. Be relaxed with what you have. Since God assured us, I'll never let you down. Never walk off and leave you. We can boldly quote, quote, God is there ready to help. I'm fearless no matter what. Who or what can get to me? So let's pray. I'm not going to ask you to respond in any way to embarrass you. I want to pray for you. And if that's you this morning, maybe you say, that's me. I'm in that room. It's dark. I'm looking at the books. I'm looking at my financial situation. And all I can see is darkness. I'm going to pray that you will have light in the tunnel. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are such an amazing God. And Lord, your desire for us, you want more for us than ever you want from us. All you want really is our heart and our devotion. God, forgive us when we get distracted and get to be serving money rather than serving you. We get consumed with more rather than committed to managed. But Lord, sometimes we get into situations in life where it gets really dark financially and there's no peace of mind and all we can see is darkness. God, I pray if there's anyone, even if there's one person here this morning and all they can see when they look at their books or their bank statement is darkness. Lord, I pray that there would be light in the tunnel. God, would your light dispel the darkness? Would your light dispel the fear? And then as you stay with them, as the light shines in the tunnel, God, eventually there will be light at the end of the tunnel. They will come out of this season because you are with them. So God, would you bring your peace and your presence, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.